Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated gays in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about uh, one of the worst U.S. presidents in history, devoted ideologically to nothing except for slavery and a sort of bumbling idiot who helped support the Confederacy and bring about the Civil War. Who are we talking about this week? Hugh. Well, as has become an occasional tradition, I'd like to start my profile today with a poem, or part of one. As I lay asleep in Italy, there came a voice from over the sea, and with great power it forth led me to walk in visions of poesy. I met murder on the way. He had a mask like Castlereagh. Very smooth he looked, yet grim. Seven bloodhounds followed him. All were fat, and well they might be in admirable plight. For one by one and two by two, he tossed them human hearts to chew. From which from his wide cloak he drew, yet came fraud. And he had on, like Eldon, an ermined gown. His big tears, for he wept well, turned to millstones as they fell. And the little children who, round his feet, played to and fro, thinking every tear a gem, had their brains knocked out by them. Well, that sounds unpleasant. Yeah. Well, those are the first five stanzas of The Mask of Anarchy. A satirical campaigning poem by the romantic poet Percy by Shelley about the attack in 1819 of the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry against 60,000 working-class Lancastrians who had gathered to hear the radical orator Henry Hunt uh, speak in St. Petersfield, Manchester. 700 of the men, women and children peacefully gathered to fight for their political and economic rights that day were cut down by the sabres of the Yeomanry, and 18 died. The massacre became known as the Peterloo Massacre, riffing off the name of the field and also the Battle of Waterloo, a pivotal British victory in the Napoleonic Wars that had occurred just four years before. Indeed, many in attendance had fought in the battle, only to arrive home to political repression and economic depression, as well as crippling corn laws that pushed many British subjects into poverty and famine. In the poem, the embodied figure of murder wears the mask of today's subject, the Anglo-Irish aristocrat, politician and statesman, Robert Stuart, Second Marcus of Londonderry, better known like Bjork or Madonna by his mononym, Castlereagh. I'll flip between both terms when discussing his life, mainly using his given name Robert Stuart to discuss his early life and Castlereagh after his rise to power, so bear that in mind, Robert Stuart is Castlereagh. Robert Stuart was born on the 18th of June 1769 to Robert and Sarah Stuart, a rich landowning family, Protestants who owned land in Ulster. Regular listeners might remember we discussed the colonisation of Ulster in our episode on Bad Gay James VI and I, and many of the key issues of Castlereagh's political career, such as the fear of Catholic influence, rebellion in Ireland, colonisation and urbanisation, are the consequences of decisions made during James's rule, almost two centuries earlier. Indeed, his family on his father's side were Scots-Irish, who had taken part in the colonisation of Ulster under James, while his maternal grandfather was Lord Lieutenant of Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And on his mother's side, he was related to both Charles II and to James's lover, you might remember, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. So, so far, so British, so inbred. Yes, once again, we have our favourite character, the very good and normal sex and gender politics of the British ruling class. I think it's also interesting to note that James Buchanan in our last episode was also descended from Ulster Scots. So, Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Um, so Robert Stewart's mother died in childbirth a year after he was born, and his father remarried. 
His father received an inheritance of a fortune from a distant relative who'd been involved in the early colonisation of India. Oh, good. And he used that to buy his land in County Down. As a result, he was an important part of Anglo-Irish society at the time, and in 1771, when his son was just two, he was elected as a member of the Irish House of Commons as a Whig. Whig. Lace front or hard front? <laughs> Whig. Uh, Whig. The Whigs were a political faction in England from the mid-17th to mid-19th century who uh, generally supported a constitutional rather than absolute monarchy, and they were fierce opponents of Catholicism and especially the Catholic pretenders to the throne, the Jacobites, whom they'd overthrown in the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, when they had um, thrown the Catholic James II and Seventh, uh, the great-grandson of our queer James, uh, from the throne and replaced him with his Protestant daughter Mary and her Dutch husband William of Orange. The resulting century of anti-Catholic repression became an obsession of British politics. So when Robert the Elder was elected to the Irish Parliament, Catholics couldn't stand for election, nor could they vote. In fact, pretty much the only people who could vote in Ireland were members of self-selecting municipal corporations. So the whole thing was an anti-Catholic, anti-Irish stitch-up, giving fat salaries to Protestant landowners while ensuring English maintained control of Ireland. Indeed, the executive of Ireland, the Lord Lieutenant, wasn't even answerable to the Irish Parliament. He just was just answerable to the king. And it's interesting that this kind of anti-Catholic sentiment in a certain kind of otherwise reformist or constitutional politics carried over into the U.S. as well. The know-nothings, uh, who we were talking about a little bit in last uh, last week's episode about Buchanan, were also an anti-Catholic force and were related to the American Whigs. And sort of along with the American Whigs were one of the political forces that ended up being sort of folded into the anti-slavery Republican Party. Um, so that's just kind of a uh, strange common uh, trait with maybe common roots in uh, certain kinds of um, Anglo and American politics in general. Yeah, and part of that was because when the uh, English colonized Ireland, they, um, they forced a lot of people off the land, which was a continuing process throughout the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And a lot of those people then emigrated to the United States. So that buys into this sort of American anti-immigrant feeling as well. So Ireland had been uh, occupied by the British for a long time. Who had, They'd colonised Ulster with the planters, but for about 100 years since the end of the war between William of Orange and the Jacobites, a small group of I- Anglo-Irish Church of Ireland Protestants, known as the Ascendancy, had ruled a vastly majority Catholic Ireland. However, towards the end of the 18th century, Inspired by the American and French revolutions, liberal Protestants in Ireland who wanted wider political reform uh, and an expansion of suffrage, the right to vote, began organising alongside the Catholic population who'd always resisted British rule. So our Robert Stewart grew up at the pinnacle of Anglo-Irish society, but he was frequently very sickly as a child, so he couldn't go to school in England, which was common. Instead, he was schooled in Armagh. However, one shining light of his difficult childhood was his close relationship with his new uh, stepmother's father, a man called Charles Pratt, the first Earl Camden, who was a prominent English judge, a legal theorist, a Whig politician, Lord High Chancellor, Attorney General, and he was the man who laid out Camden Town in London. Whig. Camden saw the promise in the young Stuart and supported his political career, encouraging him to go to England to study at Cambridge. However, in 1790, when he was barely 21, he left Cambridge, largely at the behest of his father, um, and he was then elected to the Irish Parliament himself as an independent. 
At the start of his career, some of the liberals in Ireland had seen him as a potential hope for helping to remove some of the repressive legislation against Catholics. This process is called Catholic emancipation. Um, but his election coincided with the French Revolution, which threw Europe into a state of panic, if not turmoil. Much like the Russian Revolution, the established powers of Europe were terrified by the idea of its radicalism uh, and that it might be contagious, not least amongst their increasing populations of urban poor. Since a regular army in Ireland had been dispatched to fight against rebellious colonists in America, Ireland had been protected by a set of militias known as the Irish Volunteers. But in 1793, fearing that their loyalty was in question, the British abolished the Volunteers and established a militia. The young Stuart enrolled as a lieutenant colonel. Having visited revolutionary France twice, and in his role as uh, an officer in the militia, um, seeing rising rebellious attitudes in Ireland, he began to withdraw from his previous liberal beliefs. And it was in these years that Stuart's career took off. In 1794, he was elected as an MP in the Parliament in Westminster, which significantly increased his political opportunities. The same year, he married Amelia or Emily Hobart, an eccentric socialite and aristocrat from an English family. Two years later, his father became Lord Londonderry, and as a result, Stuart himself became Viscount Castlereagh, the name he held for most of his life. His uncle was made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and his arrival was greeted with rioting. As a result, Castlereagh became increasingly sure of the threat of Irish rebellion, and he got his first political office as an advisor to his unpopular uncle. For Castlereagh, Ireland was a soft Catholic underbelly of Britain. It was ripe for invasion and takeover by revolutionary France, which would leave Britain critically exposed to attack. It was both militarily underprepared and socially unstable, and so he advocated Catholic emancipation, giving Catholics civil and political rights, claiming this would sort of tamper down the threat of rebellion in the case of a French invasion. And at the same time, he worked hard to repress attempts um, of liberal and radical Irish movements to organise. As a talented administrator, he was promoted to acting Chief Secretary of Ireland in March of 1798, and two months later his worst, worst fears were realised. A group of Irish Republicans, known as the United Irishmen, led by Wolf Tone, began a rebellion that spread across the country, aided by a French invasion. I'm sorry, Hugh. Wolf Tone? Yeah, Wolf Tone. He's a great hero in Ireland. Wolf Tone? Wig. Yeah, it's a good name. <laughs> Not a wig. Um... So yeah, there was this rebellion the, of the United Irishmen in 1798, which went on for about five months, um, where the Irish fought against the British occupation. And at one point they managed to declare an Irish Republic, but it only lasted for 12 days. And they were defeated thanks to a number of massacres by the British against Irish civilians and against the United Irishmen. Castlereagh realised that faced with the threat of the revolutionary and secular France, the Catholic Church was not necessarily a sworn enemy, but could be a counter-revolutionary ally. We've heard that before. So as a result, his response to the Irish Rebellion was to advocate for an act of union between the kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland. So up until then, Ireland had been ruled as like a personal union between the King of Great Britain, whereas an act, uh, who, who ruled Great Britain and Ireland. And an act of union would entail the nations um, being joined together into a single united kingdom with a single parliament in Westminster in London. And at this point, Castlereagh showed the expertise in rail politic for which he'd become famous because he helped Prime Minister Pitt the Younger to campaign for the Union. And to the British Protestants, he warned that if you had separate parliaments, there'd be a risk that Irish Catholics would be emancipated um, and then they'd create a Catholic government in Ireland that would break from Britain. 
But then to the Irish, he promised an end to the rule of the Protestant ascendancy because Catholics would be allowed to stand uh, and sit for the United Kingdom Parliament. And also then to Catholics, he said that the threat of a French-style secular government would be removed if he had the protection of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. So there was this uh, huge campaign that he organised, which was mainly a campaign of organised corruption on this massive scale. Um, And Pitt and Castlereagh eventually won the day, and the Act of Union passed in 1800. However, in the process, King George III stuck his oar in, and he absolutely vetoed any idea of Catholic emancipation. And so as a result, for a lot of Irish Catholics, the blame was put firmly onto Castlereagh. Whether he'd meant to or not, he'd completely sold them down the river. And basically... They were now being ruled from Westminster without the Irish Parliament, but they couldn't stand or, or vote in the, the elections, so they were completely unrepresented. So um, he resigned and Pitt resigned, uh, discovering that the king had plotted against them. But Castlereagh was soon back in government, serving as a sort of um, controller of British uh, corporations' colonisation of India. By 1804, Pitt was back in power. And he made Castlereagh his deputy and also the Minister of War. He was perhaps at the height of his powers at this point. With Pitt's health failing, Castlereagh took on much of the responsibility for British policy. France had been taken over by a young military officer turned consul, Napoleon Bonaparte, in 1799. And by 1804, he was Emperor of France, engaged in a series of military conflicts with a coalition of enemies, including Britain, from 1803. After Pitt died in 1806, Castlereagh took on the same role in his successor government, and by 1808, Britain was involved in the Peninsular Wars, a bloody and destructive seven-year conflict on the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal, where Britain attempted to help Spain and Portugal eject the Napoleonic French forces from their country. However, at the peak of his power, Castlereagh nearly lost it all. In 1809, he'd been involved in planning the Walcheren Campaign, which was an ill-fated attempt to open a second front against the French in the Netherlands, which collapsed due to a devastating illness that swept amongst the troops. The foreign minister, George Canning, had opposed the idea, thinking it was a diversion from the main campaign in the Iberian Peninsula, and he tried to scupper it. The two men's feud entangled the government until Canning made a secret deal with the Prime Minister to sack Castlereagh. Castlereagh found out and in a sort of faintly ridiculous English style, he challenged Canning to a duel. Oh, God. Yeah. Canning accepted, um, despite the fact that Castlereagh had been trained as a military officer, while Canning had never fired a pistol before. But this is... Bet that went well for him. Yeah. Canning unsurprisingly missed, but Castlereagh hit him. He got him in the thigh. Uh, and the event completely outraged public opinion, and so both of them had to stand down. It would be three years before Castlereagh was back in office, this time as foreign minister, a role that he held for another decade, seeing out the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, right, the Napoleonic Wars. Honestly, at this point, there's too much to go, go into. They lasted for about 15 years. They spreaded, spread from Moscow all the way to the Caribbean, and they involved pretty much every major European power at the time. But at his forefront were the French, obviously, and the English, who were battling for territorial, colonial trade, diplomatic control, not just of the European continent, but of the huge colonial empires that both uh, both powers were building at the time. Castlereagh was a major figure for much of the period as a minister for war and the colonies, and he was the diplomatic key in building the five major coalitions that eventually defeated Napoleon, not once, but twice. 
In the words of his biographer, John Bew, quote, The heroes of the Napoleonic Wars are usually Nelson Wellington and William Pitt, yet Castlereagh's life, as Chief Secretary for Ireland from 1796 to 1800, Colonial Secretary from 1802 to 1805, War Secretary from 1806 to 1809, and Foreign Secretary from 1812 to 1822, was inexplicably intertwined with each of these men. He remained at the heart of the war effort from the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 through to the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. It was Castlereagh who transcribed the last thoughts of Pitt the Younger before his death in 1806 and put his war plan into action. Um, the diplomatic system that followed the wars was also largely Castlereagh's invention, including the agreements that were made at the Congress of Vienna, a system of collective security that is the forerunner of today's uh, modern collective security organisations such as NATO and the EU. The end of the Napoleonic Wars was almost as, as disruptive for British society as their start. In 1815, Parliament imposed the first of the Corn Laws, protectionist policies designed to keep prices high for uh, domestic farmers and landowners. This pushed prices for bread, the staple of the poor, up. A situation that was exacerbated by failed harvests in 1816 following the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. Global weather suffered a series of anomalies that resulted in famine in 1816, which was also thought to have contributed to a major typhus outbreak in 1819. Lancashire was the heart of a rapidly growing industrial sector, especially in the production of cotton, and working conditions and urbanisation led to a terrible life for newly proletarianised workers. However, there was virtually no political representation for those who laboured in Lancashire's mills. Not only was the right to vote reserved only for landowners, but parliamentary constituencies were still essentially medieval. Kings had created seats for tiny constituencies just to give their favourites a job. We've heard about that before. While rapid urbanisation had created these new massive urban centres in previously agricultural counties with only a few MPs. As a result, the borough of Dunwich elected two MPs, despite having literally been washed into the sea and having only 232 inhabitants left. While the constituency of Lancashire, which includes the new mill towns of Manchester, Bolton, Salford, Blackburn, Oldham and Rochdale, and more than a million inhabitants, also returned two MPs. That sounds like the US Senate. Yeah. It was called the Rotten Boroughs. This combination made Manchester the home of a nascent radical workers' movement, helped along by the new radical newspaper, the Manchester Observer. Workers began organising mass meetings of thousands of working people in the city, addressed by radical orators such as Henry Hunt. In August 1819, the founders of the Observer invited Hunt back to St Petersfield to address a crowd on the need for political reform. Having been mocked by middle-class commentators for their scruffy, unkempt demeanour, the organisers were keen to have the crowd well turned out, and so they began training workers in marching. This was interpreted by local magistrates as military drilling, and they began to fear insurrection from the hungry and disgruntled workers. Thanks for that, Ben. Uh, The town's bourgeoisie organised a military response. 600 hussars were drafted in, alongside 400 special constables, 400 men of the Cheshire Yeomanry, the Royal Horse Artillery with two six-pounder artillery guns, and crucially, the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry. These were basically gammon on horseback, pissed-up reactionary bullies. They were described in the Observer as, quote, generally speaking, the fawning dependence of the great, with a few fools and a greater proportion of coxcombs, 
who imagined they acquired considerable importance by wearing regimentals. They were subsequently variously described as younger members of the Tory party in arms. Sounds about right. As Hunt arrived, he was greeted by maybe 80,000 marchers, who welcomed him enthusiastically. Watching from a pub on the edge of the field, local landowner and magistrate, oh, same job, uh, William Hutton, uh, Hulton, issued a warrant for the arrest of the speakers. As the special constables could not make their way through the packed crowd to deliver the uh, warrant, Hulton delivered further messages to both the yeomanry and the hussars. The yeomanry, who were sort of pissed up um, and already on their horses, led a charge into the crowd, followed by the hussars, sabres drawn. Unable to escape due to the exits being blocked by soldiers with drawn bayonets, hundreds were crushed or cut down by the marauding men. Afterwards, John Lees, a textile worker who was a veteran of Waterloo, said, At Waterloo there was man to man, but there it was downright murder. Lees later died of his injuries. After the massacre, the government knew who was to blame and on whom to crack down. They instituted a series of repressive measures against reform organisers, journalists and workers, with a series of laws known as the Six Acts. These laws included, among other things, a ban on military-style drilling by civilians, the right to search property for arms, reductions on the right to bail, and major restrictions on the right to assembly. On top of that, it increased the powers of the state to suppress journalism, including a new four-penny duty on newspapers that put them out of the reach of the masses of working people. Although the acts were devised by Lord Sidmouth, it was Castlereagh who put them before Parliament, saying it was, in his opinion, utterly impossible for the mind of man long to withstand the torrent of criminal and seductive reasoning which was now incessantly poured out to the lower orders. Uh... So you can see how the shift, not just in Castlereagh's political thinking here, but also in the whole government response to political unrest. In the making of the English working class, E.P. Thompson writes... In 1795, Pitt could present himself as defending the constitution against French innovation. In 1819, Liverpool, Sidmouth, Eldon and Castlereagh were seen as men intent upon displacing constitutional rights by despotic continental rule. But indeed, the working class were on the edge of revolt, and the following year the Cato Street Conspiracy, which was a plot to kill the entire cabinet, was discovered. A key part of the plot was said to be the beheading of Castlereagh, with his head to be put on a pike. By this point, he was one of the most hated men in Britain. I know what you're thinking, Ben. Bad, yes, but where does the faggotry come in? Well, by all accounts, his marriage to Amelia was happy, although the two did have a reputation for being eccentric hosts. I will also say that Amelia Hobart Castlereagh is a canonically gay name, and I look <laughs> forward to a very lushly costumed BBC miniseries starring Laura Dern. <laughs> Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Um, well, they never had any children, but that doesn't mean anything. Let's be fair. Um, well, and the other thing is, you know, um, we're always saying that there were no gay people before 1869. There were also no straight people before 1869. Yeah. And as we all know, marriage meant very different things back then. And how could we possibly say they were in love? We just know that they were married. Well, let's talk a bit more about um, homosexuality, homosexuality in England and specifically in London at the time. There was a confluence of factors that had made sodomy a hot topic. First of all, the wars with France and the fear of invasion had attending it a fear of moral decline, and sodomy was very much part of that, known as the French vice. 
At the same time, you had this rapid urbanization that was leading to new habits and opportunities within cities, not least the rise of the Molly House. The Molly House was an informal meeting place for queer people, mainly what we'd now describe as gay men. Uh, they weren't necessarily brothels, although prostitution was definitely very present and visible. They were a cross between a coffee shop, a gay bar, a club, and a sex club, perhaps. Sounds fun. Yeah, Where, sounds fun, yeah. Should we go to one later? Yeah, they bring back the Molly House. Um, sometimes they were in taverns or in private houses, and there were places for queers to meet, um, and where they could hire private rooms for sex. Um, they also held labor- elaborate social rituals, including parodic or maybe sincere marriages, and uh, fake birthing rituals, where men would be assigned as midwives. In the trial for sodomy of one John Church at the time, it was alleged that during the birthing process, a pair of bellows was used to expel a whole Cheshire, Cheshire cheese that was acting as the baby. I... Um, these... Wig. <laughs> wig. Wig. <laughs> these, um, these places were well known despite attempts to crack down on them. Um, this was before the existence of a professional police force, after all. Um, they were mainly located around the West End or near Lincoln's Inn Fields. And this rise in sexual deviancy was addressed as high up as the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, who in 1808, while Castlereagh was his war secretary, ordered the gates of St. James's Park and Hyde Park to be locked at nights in order to prevent, quote, those scandalous practices in such a way that the public is kept ignorant of the disgrace of them. There was a scandal two years later in 1810 when a molly house at the White Horse in Veer Street, where the LSE campus now is, was raided and 23 men were arrested, ranging from a butcher to a lord, and they were tried and sent to the pillory. This isn't the sort of getting through a few rotten tomatoes thrown at you like you might see in a cartoon, but it was a really vicious punishment where men would have been subjected to uh, violent, vicious assault, abuse, having shit thrown at them, all sorts. But one aspect that had also changed was the rise of the printed press which had created a satire boom in England of poems and prints that commented on contemporary politics. And so the threat of blackmail or public disgrace became ever-present. For example, a few years after the Veer Street incident, a pamphlet entitled The Phoenix of Sodom or the Veer Street Coterie... Hugh, you can just call me by my name. I'm right here. (laughs) You don't have to refer to me in the third person. (laughs) The Phoenix of Sodom asked... How came a man of fortune and of fashion to such a house? Even men in sacerdotal garb have descended from the pulpit to the gully hole of breathing infamy in Veer Street. Once again, Hugh, I'm right here. Uh, one such victim of this new taste for publicising the mockery of gay men came about a decade or so later, in 1822. Ben, picture the scene. It's a balmy July evening, and you are Percy Jocelyn, the respected Bishop of Cloffer. I'm sorry, what was her name? Percy Jocelyn. Oh, girl. <laughs> um, was she... Uh, figures. You've just uh, you've just had a long day's work in the House of Lords, obviously, and you've decided to walk home, perhaps to change out of your official ceremonial garb that you were wearing in the chamber, uh, before to going on maybe to join your fellow campaigners at the Society for the Suppression of Vice, of which you are a prominent member. But as you are walking up through St. James's Park, it's such a warm evening, you know, people milling about, promenading, etc., etc. You decide, why not? Let's stop for a pint of porter in the White Lion on Charles Street, just off the Haymarket. 
Uh, you then walk through into the back parlour, where there is a handsome young soldier from the Grandier Guards waiting. He introduces himself as John Moverley. You strike up conversation with him. You're 57, he's in his mid-twenties. He's young enough to be your son. But as you run your hand along his thigh, you can't help but notice that bulge in his dress uniform. Oh, Hugh. And before you know it, your cassock is up over your head and the guardsman is going away hammering tongues at you. All in all, a good evening, and something you've probably done countless times before. Except you probably should have changed out of your clerical robes before you came. The landlord and his son saw you come in, and suspecting foul play, they snuck around the back of the pub to take a look in the window and to see what you were up to. They called the watch, and before you know it, you're being dragged through London, abused and assaulted by a violent mob. You manage to get a friend to post bail, and you skip the country, but your life is over. You're stripped of your position, and for months the papers are full of mockery for you. Famed satirist Crookshank caricatures you and the guardsmen of your pants around your ankles, trying to bribe the watchman. Someone publishes a limerick which goes, The devil to prove the church was a farce went out to fish for a bugger. He baited his hook with a soldier's arse and pulled up the Bishop of Clover. (laughs) That is why friends don't let friends join the Society for the Suppression of Vice. People start calling you the Arse Bishop. (laughs) Again, Hugh, I'm right here. (laughs) The the Arse Bishop, Ben Miller. Right, Reverend. But you spend the rest of your life living in ignominy in Edinburgh as a butler under an assumed name. And for as long as you live, clotherism is a byword for homosexuality. For weeks after, bishops cannot walk the streets of London thanks to you. And then, only a month after your court, the Marcus of Londonderry, formerly Viscount Castlereagh, Robert Stuart, walks into a meeting with King George IV. He appears distracted. He mentions he thinks he's being watched, followed by a servant. And then he makes a shocking admission to the king. Police officers have been sent to arrest me. I am accused of the same crime as the Bishop of Clougher. Wig. Castlereagh's friends were obviously concerned. Wellington implored Castlereagh's physician, Dr. Bankhead, to visit him that weekend, after he'd visited Wellington in tears, asking him him if he'd heard any rumours about it. Castlereagh was sure that he was being blackmailed, yet he resisted all attempts to alert the authorities. Instead, he seemed to drift into a paranoid panic. Bankhead bled him, which was a, a common medical practice at the time, you know, like, um, what are they called? Leeches. Leeches, yeah. Um, Tories. Just call them Tories. But um, unsurprisingly, it didn't really help. Anyway, I'll quote briefly here from a letter that was written by uh, the Duke of Wellington at the time. It appears to me that his mind and body have been overpowered by the work of the session, and that he is at this moment in a state of mental delusion. Raise your hands for every time your mind and body have been overpowered by the session. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'll stop making these jokes now. He took me into his house to talk to me about the same story that he told told to you and to Lord Liverpool. And, strange to say, he imagined from my manner at the last cabinet, and afterwards walking home with him, that I had heard of something against him and believed it. He thought that the same Duke of he thought the same of the Duke of York, and he told me some strange story of a man telling him this day that his horses were waiting for him when he was coming out of the Carlton House, of his not having ordered his horses to town, and of the arrival of the horses, and of his being informed of their arrival, as proof that the person who had ordered up his horses, and the person who informed him they were waiting, thought there was so much against him that he ought to flee the country. He continued to prepare for an upcoming trip to Verona, 
But his wife, Emily, was increasingly worried about his state of mind and wrote to the king who, in his reply, implored him to rest. But he never had chance to read the letter. His wife had hidden his razors and his pistols, but as he dressed one morning, he dismissed his maid in order to get some privacy. When she returned three minutes later, Castlereagh had slit his own throat and he bled out on the bedroom floor. Suicide at this time was both a sin and a huge social stigma. To avoid the shame, an inquest ruled that Castlereagh was insane at the time of his suicide, and some modern historians agree, claiming that his suspicion was a symptom of a mental illness perhaps brought on by late-stage syphilis. Others, such as Peter Ackroyd, suggest it's an open question, and that it's more than possible that he was indeed being blackmailed and was seeking to spare his wife the shame, while at the same time the radical pamphleteer, William Cobbett, accused the government of a swift cover-up with the inquiry. However, he was certainly under enormous strain. His general unpopularity following the Six Acts contrasted with the plaudits he had received in the wars, and he was working flat out in trying to build a new diplomatic order for Europe, and his father, whom he was close to, had died the year before. He was mourned by his own class and buried in Westminster Abbey. Even the opposition were gracious in their remarks, with reformist MP Henry Brougham saying, It's like losing a connection suddenly. Also, he was a gentleman and the only one amongst them. Yet among the populace at large, his death was celebrated, and even his funeral procession to the Abbey was jeered and heckled. There was a hatmaker named Joseph Swan who had been imprisoned for seditious libel, one of the crimes provided for in the Six Acts, for writing a short poem which went, Off with your fetters, spurn the slavish yoke, now, now or never can your chain be broke. Swift then, rise, and give the fatal stroke. While serving his prison sentence, the uh, uh, William Cobbett addressed to him his obituary of Castlereagh in his paper, The Political Register. Castlereagh has cut his own throat and is dead. Let that sound reach you in the depth of your dungeon, and carry consolation to your suffering soul. But perhaps the last word on Castlereagh should be left to that other extremely bad gay, Lord Byron, who wrote the following epitaph. Posterity will ne'er survey a nobler grave than this. Here lie the bones of Castlereagh. Stop, traveller, and piss. We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and higher levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon, t-shirts, episode archive, is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Well then, that is an incredible story, and wonderfully told as always, Hugh. Um... My first question is about uh, whether there was any, and I mean, this is kind of a common theme developing across this season now, um, was, there, was there any evidence that Castlereagh actually uh, committed any of these acts other than the charge of blackmail? Or um... The short answer is no. Um, we can't know. There, there is no evidence. Um, 
most hist- a lot of historians uh, say no that he was some paranoia that he had developed some sort of mental illness. Although how you can um, diagnose that from a distance is just as difficult in some ways. Um, some, but then again, some historians such as um, Peter Ackroyd suggest that actually there was it was reasonably likely, if not obviously provable. I mean, for a start, he never attempted to address the blackmail by uh, contacting the authorities anyway. I mean, you know, he's the foreign secretary, he's Lord Castlereagh, so he's he's really um, he's going to be believed. You know, things things strings can be pulled for Lord Castlereagh. Right, and it's also not that I mean he didn't get caught with his pants down around his ankles, um, like the Bishop of Clover. Um, speaking of the Bishop of Clover, uh, which is spelled in an utterly ridiculous way, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I think it's pronounced it right. Cluffer, but then it but then it rhymes with with bugger. So clugger, it's Cluffer. It has a G and an H in it. I I I, I give up. Uh, the the Bishop of whoever the hell he was. Um, who is this person other than this kind of prominent uh, sodomy arrest? Uh, is there more that you can say about him? I mean, that story um, was so hilarious um, and led me to well, is an it? unstoppable stream of dick jokes <laughs> for, it, to which I apologize. There are funny elements to it, not least the the arse bishop. But um, no, I mean, in, in, in its entirety, his life is a very sad story. Um, and actually can inform quite a lot of our understanding of uh, Castlereagh because uh, a number of years earlier, he'd been accused by, um, I think, the page of, or the, the footman of his brother of attempting to sodomize him. And it was basically this younger guy's word against his. And as a result, um, the younger guy was found guilty of like uh, uh, slander and was whipped as a result. Um so, so, and, and, and then after he got caught literally with his pants down, um, there was quite a lot of moves by various people to sort of compensate this poor guy who had been horsewhipped and I think jailed for, um, for telling on him. So, so actually like that, that shows that if you are powerful, it is, and it is just your word against someone else's, it, in that time especially, I mean, it's kind of the same now, you, you, you as a more powerful person, you get away with it. Um, and also that, yeah, they, they just wouldn't be believed. Um, so yeah, and then afterwards, the sort of depth of, uh, you know, the, the, the Bishop of Clougher had to live, uh, under an assumed name and his life was pretty much destroyed by it and he became a butler and, um, he, he went from this position of high, high authority in the church to living in ignominy. So. The, the Irish butler? The arse, yeah, the arse butler. Um, I, I really promise I will stop making, no, I don't. I'm not going to promise I'll stop making these jokes. I shouldn't make promises I can't keep. Um, on a different and maybe more structural note, um, I want to ask a sort of rambling question that will maybe get us to address some uh, commonalities, uh, some additional unspoken commonalities between um, or themes that come up in both um, this episode and the episode about James, the first and sixth. More of a comment and a question. Oh, yes. Um, well, I can do it with you, Hugh, because we're sitting right here in the same room and we're friends and we're both men. Yeah. So um, when we talked about James, the first and uh, sixth, we talked about um, this moment where sodomy 
illegalization. Sodomy bans, right, are associated with this moment of land expropriation in the beginning of what some um, lefty historians, uh, me included, talk about as the transition to capitalism. Um, and people, listeners to our show may be familiar with the historical work of Silvia Federici, who looks at witch burnings and land expropriations together. Um, Christopher Chitty, uh, was, uh, sadly was, um, is no longer living, but was a, uh, historian along the same line who was sort of adding sodomy to that equation. And his book, which is called Sexual Hegemony, will be coming out from Duke University Press later this year and will be a big thing. Um, the question or comment, I guess, is to think about the interesting fact of discovering these sodomites in the position of um, reactionary political forces who are, on the one hand, part of the um, political movement that is expropriating land, uh, encouraging industrialization, um, banning sodomy, uh, and on the other hand, themselves engaging in the practices which they are banning. I mean, look at the, the the bishop who was in the Society for the Suppression of Vice and then gets caught with the soldier. And it's a in a way, it's a tale as old of time. But in another way, it's also interesting to see people kind of um, enacting the exact same kinds of uh, systems of persecution that would end up bringing them down because maybe 150 or 200 or 300 years earlier, sodomy would have been a religious crime and not a, and not a civil one um, and would have been differently handled if not acceptable am, am i completely on the wrong track here or do you no, see I, where i'm going with this? I, um i do i do i think it would have had a different weight to it before when it was a religious crime um i think um i think the yeah the, there is like a definite link because the uh, 1533 buggery act which was brought in by um henry the eighth was brought in exactly at the moment when he was dissolving the monasteries and creating the church of england so it's this key moment in um this mix of both uh uh the birth of protestantism and anti-catholicism in, in anti-catholicism in the uk but also the um the start of major enclosures of land so so in um in dissolving the monasteries uh he was bringing a huge amount of power, Henry VIII, to himself, both in terms of legalistic power, so changing these laws from being church laws to civil civil law, and secondly, in literally taking all the land off them and turning that over to his own production. So you see the start of this moment that is going to become capitalism in the enclosure of the lands, and that process of enclosure lasts for three or four hundred years on from that. Um, and Catholicism then, at that point, really becomes tied to um, uh, sodomy, because one of the justifications he has for um, for dissolving the monasteries is this that they, he says they become this sort of den of vice, um, which is a very popular understanding of the monarchy of, of the monasteries at the time. That you know they have these these powerful all male um, uh, uh, groups, these homosocial groups, and he says that, like, well, actually, everyone, you know, we all know there's something bit fishy going on here which is also probably true because to a the monastery was a place where you could send um there's an argument that the, that the church at the time and monasteries were a place where your non-productive kid your the last kid the last son you have for example he's not going to inherit the land um there's no more land for him to inherit let's send him to the monastery you know he's a bit weird 
you know, he's not going to have a, have a good job here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's a bit, you know, yeah. So there is an argument there, and that's so. Do you, so you have that at the, at the very birth of um, of the enclosures, and then it it sort of sets in as both a civil crime and as also a very very handy uh, way to condemn people. You know, you can pin on your opponents in much the same way as we saw earlier this season with um, Yezov. You know, like I'll just say that he's a fag, and you know, no one's going to defend him, which really comes up at this time, as you see that there's this sort of moral fear. So all these people are being kicked off the lands. They're all being moved into urban centres where they can become the sort of uh, the new proletariat. And this process of urbanisation and proletarianisation is putting all these people together in this like tightly packed place. There's this fear like, what are these people getting up to? These like, all these, um, all these working class people, or they've got loose morals, they don't have the church and they're all like living in the same rooms. I bet they're up to no good. So that's happening at the same time. And then you also have this fear of the French. So it's called the French vice. I think at the time the French are calling it the English vice, you know, so you can see there it's just a thing that you pin on each other. Mm-hmm. So Hugh, Lord Castlereagh, bad gay, not bad gay, not bad, not gay, not bad gay. Um, he, bad. Yeah, I, in my view, completely, completely terrible in, in terms of both his involvement in Ireland and also his, his sort of suppression of the nascent English, um, radical working class movement. Um, there is an argument that has been happening, you know, that happened after he died that he had such a bad reputation that it's kind of unfair. And actually, if you're looking at a lot of historians who are arguing this from a sort of more classical point of view, say, oh, well, he was actually an excellent foreign minister and he achieved a lot and he set out these things and he achieved them and he brought peace to Europe for 13 more years, etc., etc. From my position, I mean, fuck him. Um, gay? Very hard to tell. Um, I don't think you can just write it off as either a ment- like this sort of mental illness that he was suffering at the time, although that could be a part of the situation, like his behaviour was strange. Um or was a deviation from his normal behavior. Um, but likewise, his behavior is also, um, you know, what you'd expect from someone who was being blackmailed for homosexuality. Maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, we don't know. But it does tell us, again, quite a bit about perceptions of homosexuality in the Georgian upper class at the time. So, uh, if people want to learn more about Lord Castlereagh, what are some of the sources that you use to research this episode? Yeah, there are two main books I use for Castlereagh in particular, one of which is called Castlereagh by John Bue, and that's like the, the newest um, sort of best biography of him. And then also a book called The Strange Death of Lord Castlereagh, which is by another figure who I'd like to talk about at some point, called H. Montgomery Hyde, who was a Ulster Unionist MP in England in the 1940s and 50s, Ulster Unionists being uh, the Protestant, a, part, a party of the Protestants in Ulster and Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. um, who was one of the people who was the main architects of homosexual law reform in the UK. And he became, um, he lost his position within the Ulster Unionist party and his sort of political career was destroyed by the sort of moral principle he had that homosexuals deserve rights. And one of the interesting things about him is that he was, he started off as the biog- the biographer of the Londonderry family. That's where he's from. So he had this interest in Northern Irish politics uh, and Northern Irish history, especially the Londonderrys, that then changed into a history of homosexuality, which I think might be due to the fact that he might have thought that there was something in it and he wanted to get to the bottom of it. So he's a really interesting figure. And actually a lot of stuff to do with um, political homosexual history in the UK comes down to this guy called 
uh, H. Montgomery Hyde, who, um, yeah, so he had this book called The Strange Death of Lord Castlereagh. He also wrote quite a lot about Oscar Wilde, a lot of the early gay histories of Oscar Wilde. He wasn't, as far as I know, himself gay. And then other books I looked at in the process were um, The Jewel in English, uh, sorry, The Jewel in European History by Victor Kiernan, which is a sort of um, Marxist history of the jewel, which is really interesting. The Making of the English Working Class by E.P. Thompson, which should be number one on our reading list in general. should be number one on everyone's reading list. A great book. Um, And Queer City, Gay London from the Romans to the Present Day by Peter Ackroyd. And I also uh, looked through a lot of writing by our old friend online, Richter Norton. Richter Norton, who I have to do the historian disclaimer, has some uh, very strongly expressed anti-social constructionist views, which I do not agree with or endorse, but whose website does contain a lot of really interesting archival material from the past that exists outside of his particular understanding of homosexuality as an eternal constant throughout time. And disclaimer. So, um, you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGaysPod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Utopian Drivel, which can be found at hugh.substack.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. Bad, 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 bad,